Hello, I'm Laura Dodsworth and welcome to my first podcast. Joining me today is Ian Miller, the author of the book Unmasked, The Global Failure of Covid Mask Mandates, and he also writes a substack called Unmasked. Ian, I really wanted to invite you to have a conversation with me because we occupy quite similar positions. We both wrote books about specific aspects of the management of the pandemic and we wrote them quite fast. Now, your book tells the story of how effective or ineffective masks and mask mandate policies were in impacting the pandemic throughout the world. And it includes lots of easy to understand graphs, the sorts of things which have been manna on Twitter for the last couple of years. I'm a big fan of this book. I think it's going to be an invaluable reference for a very strange period of time when decisions on masks flip-flopped with unbelievable speed. I know it's a book I'm going to refer to when I can't remember which crazy decision happened when, but I don't know much about you. Can you just give me a little bit of information briefly about your background and what made you want to write this book? Yeah, so I live in Southern California, Um, grew up in Southern California and spent most of my life here. And and obviously California has been a very uh, harsh area in terms of COVID policy from the very beginning, um, specifically Los Angeles. And I have worked in the entertainment industry after college. I went to college in Los Angeles. And so it, it's been, a, it was kind of a personal thing for me where I was kind of, I was being affected by it and I could see how severe the restrictions were. And I wanted to see myself, you know, is it having an impact? Is it making a difference? Um, and that's one of the things I feel like the media has just never done throughout this entire the pandemic has been, they just kind of put up a counter on the side of the screen showing how many new cases there were they don't show you, okay, well, there were 100,000 new cases, but what did we do two weeks ago that's led to this or, or has completely failed to prevent it? Um, and then obviously, uh, you know, the, the, it kind of spiraled from there where a lot of people would see the graphs and, and be like, well, I live in such and such an area, you know, Chicago or the UK, for example, and what have I, we've done all these things here. Can you put something together for me uh, showing what we did in this area? So uh, it kind of spiraled out from from being a local idea in, in Los Angeles and Southern California and, and came into the whole world, really. Um, and, and so that was the idea with the book to try and kind of put all of the work into one place so that people could reference it, like you say. And uh, so that was hopefully it's been successful. <laughs> mm. Well, um, yeah, I'd like to find out more about how successful the book has been, but just briefly about about you uh what made you the person to write this book this is a question i get asked a lot about my own yeah um it's i think that it anybody could have done it honestly and i i will maintain that it's there's nothing sp- you know special about me it, it's just that anybody could have done it i think what i brought to to try to create these charts what i bring to it i think is uh i think it's very important to be concise and to be clear and and like you said you mentioned kind of easy to understand and that's the idea um uh, you know, I'm not a statistician. And, and so that I don't have the ability to come in and bring in these different regression models and things like that. I think it's very important for people to just see uh, it is if, if these measures were so important to do, it would be a very obvious impact that anybody could look at a, a chart and say, oh, well, the mass mandate came in here, for example, two weeks later, cases went down. That never happens. Or if, it, you know, if there is a mass mandate and the cases go down a couple of months later, it will go back up again a couple down the road anyway. So um, for me, I think it was just that I, I made it a goal to do it consistently. And I tend to kind of chronicle a lot of things that experts were saying um, early on. And then also, you know, anybody can do this research that I did about finding out you know, what were what, were, what did all these experts say about masks pre-COVID? Uh, I think that's very important because, you know, there was 
for a hundred years, nobody was recommending masks be worn during flu season. So what changed, you know, what, what was the evidence pre COVID what changed? Why did they go to recommending this and making it the most important thing and doing shaming and, and fines for non-compliance, things like that. Um, and so I just, you know, I was curious myself and I went and did the research and I was pretty surprised actually. I didn't, I didn't know what it was going to say before I did the research, but once I did it, you could see it was very consistent. There was no, no suggestion that masks would work in the general population. Um, all of these scientists and experts said that they said it privately right before they changed their minds. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it was really Sorry, just, just to interject yeah. and how do you know what they said privately? Well, one of the, the, one of the, the gifts that was given to me really in writing this book was that, uh, Buzzfeed, you know, American website, um, did a freedom of information act request and got emails from Dr. Fauci that were, uh, you know, obviously his private emails from the early parts of the pandemic. And there were a couple in there that were really interesting. One, one I bring up in the book, and I've brought it up a lot you know, when I've spoken about the book. Uh, in late March, he was sent an email from one of his employees at the National Institutes of Health who said, uh, we reviewed all the high quality randomized controlled trial evidence on masking, and all of it suggested that masks wouldn't have a significant impact. Um, so that's like, I think it was March 31st and April 3rd, the CDC in the US and Fauci come out and say everybody should wear a mask. Obviously, there was no way for science to have changed in three or four days. So there was no new study done. There was no new research done in three days that should have led to them changing their minds. He also told people, even, I think it was even afterwards or, or around the same time frame, you know, I don't recommend that you wear a mask um, when you go out, when you travel. I mean, he was telling people that their advice privately. So his whole, he, he, I don't know if you remember, but he went in 60 minutes here in the U.S. and gave this interview saying, Masks don't really work. They might block mm -hmm. a droplet or two, but they don't provide that great uh, protection. Then later on, he said, oh, I, that was a, a noble lie to protect supply for healthcare workers. But that doesn't hold up when you look at his, his <laughs> private correspondence and he's telling people that obviously, you know, one individual person's not going to hurt supply. I don't recommend that you wear a mask. It doesn't really work very well. So I think it's, it's pretty obvious from there, from what he was telling people and what he said privately that they didn't have any new new guidance to suggest that masks would make a significant difference. Mm. Do you know, the speed at which advice has changed has been quite dizzying. Like, so you give one example there of, of three days. But is there a particular standout moment when you really you really sat up straight and you thought, what's going on? Did you have your moments of an epiphany? Um, I don't know if it was any one particular moment. I think it, it, the especially with being in Southern California, the kind of cascading policies and how progressively more intense they got and, and kind of absurd where, you know, outdoor masking was mandated, where anytime that you left your house, you had to wear a mask, no matter how far away you were from people. I mean, that, that's what, it, like, that, that doesn't make any sense. We knew that outdoors was a lower transmission risk from the very beginning, really. And um, so to say that you have to wear a mask outdoors kind of led me to believe that it wasn't really about, uh, preventing the spread of the virus as so much as it was to remind people that we were in a pandemic and you should be taking it seriously and that you should take precautions and be, be mindful of others around you, I guess. Um, and so it was kind of that, that, that spiraling effect of, of, of all these things. And also how uh, obvious it became by, I would say, summer 2020, that areas that had that were nearby that had very different policies had nearly identical results. And, and to me, that showed, mm -hmm. you know, anybody that is paying attention can see that and say, well, it's pretty clear it can't have an impact if the areas are doing different policies and they're getting the same numbers anyway. Uh, but nobody okay, well, is telling that story. 
let's let's talk about that then because this is actually one of my favorite chapters in your book chapter seven so here in the uk we've been more fixated with comparisons between uk and sweden or with graphs showing the performance of different countries performance in terms of cases per million and deaths what we don't do here is interrogate the data between neighboring states in the us as much so i i really liked that chapter so what you do in there is you give um, comparisons between neighbouring states. And this works quite well, like you say, because there are a few confounding factors. They're neighbouring, so they're geographically the same. Um, I mean, there might be other confounding factors, but they're quite similar. And the chapter tells a very consistent story. So the majority of public health focus during the pandemic was on interventions, things that we could do to supposedly control the spread of the virus, uh, particularly masks, um, yet over and over in your book, and specifically this chapter, you show how geographically similar regions had exactly, I mean, almost exactly the same um, graphs of cases per million over time, regardless of mask mandates. Alabama and Mississippi are a good example of this. Uh, Mississippi, Mississippi had a statewide mandate for just two months, and Alabama for nearly a year, if that's correct. But if you, you know, you wouldn't be able to pick out which state is which on your graph. You take off the labels and you just wouldn't know. So I wondered, is there, is there another picture in the data? What about hospitalizations and deaths? Did they look different? I'm playing devil's advocate. Um, or did the people in Mississippi continue to wear masks, even though there wasn't a statewide mandate? Is there is there anything else that we can't see on these charts? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, I, you know, I haven't done all of these same comparisons, hospitalizations and deaths. There were a couple charts and deaths in there. And, and it again showed that there wasn't really no difference. My, my personal view would be that hospitalizations and deaths are going to be influenced by a lot more than the spread of, of cases where underlying health in the community is going to be a big indicator of how well that the, that that's going to the, how well those numbers are going to go you know california is generally a very healthy state for example and, and a fairly high income for a lot of the coastal areas you know arizona is not so you know you're going to probably see more deaths in arizona than you would in california even with the same amount of cases and that's what's happened essentially um and so i think that that's a, an important point to bring up is that masks were supposed to prevent the spread of the virus um, and in doing so, lower hospitalizations and deaths. But if it's not preventing the spread of the virus, I, I don't, you know, there's not really an argument to be made that it could be preventing hospitalizations. Uh, that's going to be more down to, to other factors. And I would, you know, back vaccination rates after 2021, early 2021 as well. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that there really response. is a, yeah, I, I, it's, it's tough. It's a tough question. And I mean, I, I, I to be honest, I haven't done all of the, the numbers on all of those by the comparisons I made. Uh, but I think it's it's pretty clear when you look at the totality of the evidence that the, the neighboring areas have very similar results. Mm. I mean, you've got issues in the US, haven't you, with comparing data from state to state because you don't have the same consistency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, and also is that correct? Yeah, definitely. There's differences in how they report, so there could be differences mm. based off of people tested versus number of tests run, and and a lot of states have never clarified which they're using. So obviously, people will say, well, "Why don't you use positive percentage?" Well. I have no idea how consistent that is because they're not often testing, uh, you know, using the same uh, testing test reporting. So, yeah, it is challenging. Uh, and that's uh, one thing that we've seen recently with uh, 
like I think the UK has done a much better job with the data where it's very easy to compare across locations and, and the different nations within the, within the UK because uh, it's more consistent and they, uh, it, it's a lot easier to get records, I think, there than it is here. We have a very decentralized system. Mm. Well, what we saw was higher cases per million in Scotland and Wales when they reduced their res- when when England reduced restrictions on masks in comparison. So um, it, it didn't play out well in terms of supporting the the mandates. So there's something you you referred to before that I want to pick up on, which is about masks being a signal because uh, it's quite it's quite obvious that if you're in the middle of in the middle of uh, you know, the countryside or on a beach on your own in California, the need to wear a mask is, is well, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? So yeah. there's a quote in your book, which I, I really liked. It's the Minnesota Health Commissioner, Jan Malcolm, who said, when things are no longer a rule or a mandate, they think that everything is safe. So I wonder how much you think public health officials did view masks as a visual reminder of the pandemic. I think it was a huge, huge tool for them to, to maintain that reminder to people. Um, I think, I, I mean, I don't know how really serious people could sit down, look closely at this data, you know, at any of the data from anywhere and say, this made a difference. Um, I don't think that it's even, I don't think it's really realistically possible. So if, if that's, if you're being intellectually honest with yourself and looking at this information, um, I don't know how you could justify it as anything else other than kind of a visual reminder tool. Um, and, and it goes back to what you were saying a second ago about like, did Mississippi, when they ended the mandate, did people keep wearing masks? Well, sure, some people did, but it clearly did, wasn't, I mean, it's not going to be nearly as much as when there isn't a mandate. We see that. We see that with our own eyes. When, you, when the mandate lifts, people stop wearing masks for the most part. And that's exactly what public health expected. Um, and if the results are the same across these different locations, and it's showing you the mandate's not making much of a difference. So if the mandate's not making much of a difference, other than as a, a visual reminder, what is the point? What's the justification for it? Um, you know, allow, allow people to have the choice to wear it or not wear it if they want to. And, and that's, it, it's, it's a very, I, I think it is a lot of, uh, it's very performative. You know, in the United States, they literally just this morning announced they're going to extend the, the mask mandate on transport and, and planes for another 30 days. I mean, what what good is that when almost every state in the country has lifted their mask mandates or will be lifting it in the next couple of days? So for two hours, you fly from California to Texas, you know, you can land in Texas, never wear a mask for a week, put the mask back on for two hours, fly back to California and never wear a mask for the whole week that you're in California. Um, so that's just, again, it's, it's so much of this has just been kind of performative and, and based off of pre- creating this sense of, you know, you need to take this seriously. We're in a pandemic. Mm. What do you make of the political and medical establishment's uncritical support of mask mandates? There's a, there's a couple of things I'd like your perspective on. First of all, there was the lack of hard, hard evidence in, in their favour and the flip-flopping. But there's another aspect I'm quite interested in, which is some es- experts, you know, they really state their reputation on these non-pharmaceutical interventions, on masks, and yet they they don't seem to have anything to say about the actual results in retrospect. Yeah. Dr. Robert Redfield, someone else you quote in your book, he directed CDC until about a year ago, described masks as the most powerful public health tool we have. Now that is a bold claim. In fact, he said they'd offer more protection than vaccines. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just astonished by this, and I wonder I wonder what you make of the fact that they're not they're not having to justify in retrospect the the results and the claims they made. 
Yeah. Um, it's very frustrating. It's been a very consistent aspect. And that's what I try to do a lot in the book is bring up, you know, here's what they were saying. Um, and there's never a follow-up. And I think a large part they can get away with that because the media that has kind of had the same experts on their talk shows all the time, and I'm sure it's happened in the UK, it's happened very consistently here, um, has, they, they kind of, they never asked the follow-up question. Um, and I think there's, in large part, journalists are kind of scared to, to criticize somebody that has the credentials of a doctor or an expert. They don't feel like they're qualified to make that, that criticism. But a lot of doctors are not subject matter experts in masks specifically, you know, they're, they are specialists in other areas they are oncologists or radiologists. Well, that's great, but that doesn't mean that they are specialists on mass. So just having an MD doesn't mean that you are automatically un unquestionable as far as these interventions go. Uh, and it's a very important point. I think it, it, it is very important because they, when they create the expectations, and I, I wrote a whole section about this in the book where it's like, you know, we expect mass to reduce infections by 80%. Or more, 80, 85%. And if 80% of people wore them, we could drive COVID to the ground. Uh, I think it's very obvious for most of the world, more than 80% of people were wearing them inside for most of the pandemic. And obviously, COVID's still going. It, it, numbers skyrocketed in the winter of 2020, 2021, and same thing this previous winter. Um, and it's it's just a, a very uh, frustrating thing that they kind of get away with making these pronouncements and never having to face a follow-up about it. I think it again, I think why is really just that they are the people that would ask the follow up questions are too scared to do it. Um, and a lot of times mm. they've been scared themselves. They've been trying to promote a policy rather than kind of just objectively inform the public. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's it's a very it's one of those those things that we're never going to get a great answer to. And, you know, even Redfield came out and said recently, oh, I think mass the impact of mass were overstated. Well, why, why would that be when you came out and said that they're better protection than vaccines and that they're the most important public health tool we have and you were running the CDC, which has taken on this kind of, you know, uh, awe-inspiring amount of power over the last two years. So, mm. yeah, it, it, I, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Because I, I, I first, well, for a couple of things. First of all, I'd say to you, I think you would be a great person to follow on. Like, give, given your book, it would be great if you could pick at least just one of these public health experts, Fauci or Redfield, and go back and ask the correct the, the the questions directly. You know, get a piece commissioned for for a national publication and and really really force the questions. Um, and would there be any pressure that comes from the public or the political establishment through an inquiry? I, I don't know what you'd what the equivalent would be in the US, but here there will be a public inquiry into the handling of COVID. That's great, uh, and unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get that here for a very long time. Um, I assume it would be Congress that would do that. And obviously Congress right now is uh, it's, it's run by Democrat, the Democratic Party and, and they are have been very supportive of COVID measures and encouraged them and for a long time. Um, so I don't think there'd be any kind of support in Congress or enough support, I should say, right now for, for that. Uh, down the road, if the as the, the offices change, uh, I think maybe we'll get more of an, uh, an investigation into it. Um, I, I agree. It would be very important. I'd be fascinated to hear their justifications. And I, I quote Fauci a lot in the book, and he specifically said that when you compare areas that have do these measures and those that don't, you will see an impact. There's no hemming or hawing. It's, it's we are you are going to see an impact from areas that follow our guidance versus areas that don't. But then when you when you show them the data and proving that that's not the case, um, what what would their response be? I, I don't think that I don't know that they would have one. I think the, the criticisms I get are like, oh well, you know, if if not enough people were wearing masks and that's why it didn't work. But if any intervention requires 100% of people to comply with it, it's never going to work because that's not a realistic goal to get. 
Uh, and so, it, you know, I don't think that the, the justifications behind it ever really had any any chance of working. And um, and it'd be it'd be good to see if they could be forced to kind of answer these questions in a public forum. But I don't I don't know if they ever will, honestly. Mm. And of course, now, Ian, we're in the time of the greats forgetting, aren't we? But for a, for a brief time, we were in the period of uh, in hindsight, in retrospect and the great pack backpedal but now the news cycle has moved on to Ukraine and it's the time of the great forgetting we should have to see if people can hold um, public health officials accountable for such bold statements now I feel sorry for you to be honest living in California and once I would have said I was jealous of somebody living in <laughs> California uh, from my from my point of view this has changed how I feel about visiting and living in different parts of the world and I mean, what's what was going on with you lot in California? Yeah, uh, it, it's describe. It t- tell it's, us about your tell us about your strictest rules and penalties regarding masks. Yeah, um, well, Los Angeles is probably the best example. Um, there's been nearly a, con- a continuous mask mandate since April 2020. I think there's been three weeks or so up until just literally this past week where masks were not required in Los Angeles to go into any indoor business essentially. Um, and there were, like I said, as I mentioned, there were outdoor mask mandates, uh, even as late as like summer of 2021, well after that, you know, outdoor transmission had been pretty much debunked. They required outdoor masking at large events. And this kind of famously came up with the Super Bowl recently where everybody was handed an N95 mask while they walked into the stadium and nobody wore them, but they were still mandated. Technically they were still mandated. And so this became kind of a controversy when the mayor of uh, Los Angeles and the governor of California were spotted taking pictures with uh, a celebrity without masks on. Um, there's been, I mean, the huge fines, there were curfews to, you know, couldn't be outside after a certain, I think it was 10 o'clock for a, a long time. They actually, technically we kind of had, and I think this happened in the UK as well. We had a, a kind of a second lockdown essentially where in winter 20, December, 2020, they closed all re- like all outdoor dining at restaurants um, and it was issued a stay at home order. So, you know, it was it's like for, for two years, L.A. has been pretty decimated by these restrictions. The mass required everywhere. And one of my favorite examples is obviously was too recent to be in the book. But just this past December, they measured went around and measured about fifteen hundred businesses uh, and checked for mass compliance and, and reported in a press release. It's out there. It's still out there. 95 plus percent of people were wearing masks for uh, in these businesses. And then cases went 20 times higher within a matter of weeks than they were when they measured 95% compliance. So I, again, it's just, it's like they kind of keep disproving themselves. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's been very frustrating. I think one of the most concerning things to me is, as you say, we're kind of in this great forgetting, but in California, they've already kind of set the stage for when there's another, a new variant or when cases go back up again, that the metrics will just come right back as far. Oh, we got to bring masks back in a statewide mask mandate because the numbers went up. So I'm, I'm very concerned about the, that this is going to become a permanent kind of rolling feature of California life. Um, and again, it's, it's very, it's become a, a kind of, it's an exacerbate all these pre-existing issues where I, I call it the believe in science crowd. If you see a yard sign that says in this house, we believe in science. It's very popular in Los Angeles. And um, you know, so there's this kind of unquestioning faith in public health experts uh, and uh, people are just I don't think they know. I don't think they have any awareness of people, you know, the 95 percent compliance and then 30 numbers go up 20 times higher in a couple of weeks. So hopefully I'm wrong, but that's that's kind of my pessimistic view at it. Yeah, no, I, just to pick up on one thing that's strange. I was at a party recently and somebody I don't know if they thought they had some kind of bone to pick with me. They said, don't you believe in medicine? 
this is this is too big a question. Medicine isn't isn't God. I mean, I've I've taken medication and been vaccinated and I've consulted doctors and had surgery. Is that enough, or is there some other right. article of faith that I need to prove? It was a really odd question. Do you so you like me might be in something of an echo chamber with your friendships, but what do you think the public appetite in California would be for donning masks again? It's it's very different depending on where you go. Um, and that's one of the, the nice things about the US is that we have so many different jurisdictions that it can make it easier to compare and show how little impact there's been. Um, I bring up Los Angeles and Orange County a lot. Orange County is right next next to Los Angeles. And the numbers in Orange County have been better when Orange County didn't have a mask mandate and L.A. did. So, you know, I, I personally, if you go to San Diego, Orange County and L.A., they're all kind of very interconnected. And in San Diego, hardly anybody is wearing masks anymore because the mandate's been lifted. Same thing in Orange County. You go to Los Angeles, it is, you know, still 90 percent of people are wearing masks inside. San Francisco and the Bay Area are kind of similar. So it, it's, it's just hugely varied depending on literally which county you're in because the, the attitudes are, are just so different. Um, I don't, when the mass mandate came, but we had one that just came back in December and just recently ended a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the vast majority of people were still complying and you didn't hear any significant pushback about it. You know, nobody really complained. So I, I'm very concerned that people are just kind of getting used to it. And <laughs> sorry, dog going crazy, but they're kind of, uh, you know, they're desensitized to, to mass as a, uh, as a public health intervention and have kind of accepted it, um, at least in some parts of the, of the state. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm concerned that people will tolerate it more. One thing I will say is that I feel like the, the attitude towards masking kids has really changed. And, and that's been a big contentious issue in California where the teachers unions want to maintain masking in schools kind of indefinitely. And parents have been very fed up with it and are very, very tired of it. So I, at least if we're going to keep pretending that it works, at least don't force it on kids. So hopefully we've made some progress in that area, at least. I hope so, because I think that's been one of the cruelest and honestly one of the most sickening aspects to see small children masked when they themselves aren't at risk. There's never been any good evidence, of course, of schools being a hotbed of transmission. And if you would pick one group of people the least able to hygienically manage wearing a mask, it's children. The younger they get, the harder it is, you know, um, if they need help brushing their teeth or going to the toilet, <laughs> they can't wear a mask. Um, I can't believe yeah. this even needs saying, really. It, you know, it was the same here in schools. Uh, my, my sons had to wear masks for a period of time in the classroom and for a much longer period of time in corridors, communal areas. Now, World Health Organization guidance for children wearing masks is that they should wash their hands or sanitize before putting the mask on and then after putting it on and then before you take it off, then you put it in a bag and throw it away and then you wash and sanitize your hands again and so on and repeat. And it should be a fresh, fresh mask each time. Well, I, I know that they just keep them in their pockets or in their bags or dangling off their chin and they never wash their hands. I only hope they wash their hands when they go to the toilet. And that's, that's about as good as it gets. So the idea that this would do anything to help rather than hinder was was a nonsense and it's so strange that teachers teaching unions are the ones who want to perpetuate it yeah it, it, it's that's a great point and it's something i try to bring up as well is even if masks work and if they if they did work they would have to be used exactly how you described them uh and it's it's pretty clear that 
not, not, not just kids, although kids obviously are the least likely to be able to maintain that kind of level of hygiene. Nobody does that or hardly anybody does that. Uh, you know, I mean, you go to a restaurant, you see people, they have to walk the three feet from the, the host stand to the table and then they put the mask in their pocket or on their table. I mean, that's, that's not how you're supposed to use it. They're not going to the, they're mm-hmm. washing their hands and taking the mask off, but just by touching the ear loops and then, you know, just putting it in a bag and nobody, nobody do is doing that. Um, and so it's, it was just, again, a lot of this feels like it's just been so performative, um, because it's so, there's so little evidence to back up that touching a mask any way you want is, is how it's going to work. I mean, you can go back and look and our, the surgeon general in the United States in early April, when they, when they flip-flop, uh, rolled up a t-shirt and said, you can just put anything in front of your face and you're going to prevent the spread of COVID. I mean, that's, that's absurd. And it's, it's, it's kind of, a, a one of those things that I think historians will look back on and be like, how did anybody take this seriously? How did anybody take this guidance seriously? And you know, communication, the communication around these measures has been so bad because they've, they've just said any mask is, is the best mask that you have. Um, and obviously that's not the case. And, and using it properly, if it, if it had any impact, would have to work. Um, a, a brief diversion, but I bring up in the book as well, you know, masks are, everybody has this misconception that doctors wear masks to stop respiratory viruses. And they, you know, you hear this on, on the internet all the time. Well, if so, if why do surgeons work, wear them? Why exactly. do surgeons wear exactly? Yes. Yeah. Go uh, on then, debunk the, it. Yeah. Well, and that's the problem. It's it's just surgeons. You know, if you go to see a, a family doctor in 2018, nobody, nobody was wearing a mask. A surgeon would be wearing a mask in theory to prevent bacterial droplets or or you know sneezes from getting into an open wound during an, an, an operation, or from blood or other you know materials splattering up from the open wound and to their face. That's what it's meant to do. A lot of research has shown it doesn't even do a very good job of that. It doesn't stop the larger bacterial droplets from, from getting out or prevent them from getting in. So they're not wearing them to prevent respiratory viruses because if they were, all doctors would be wearing them. And that was not the case. And the research shows it has, doesn't even do a great job of, of preventing these larger bacterial droplets. Um, and that's even when they're, when they're using them properly and they're trained to use them properly, where they wash their hands or in a sterile environment, they discard them after every use. So it, it's just absurd to expect that the public would be able to use them in the same way that they could anyway, even if they did work, which it's pretty clear. I don't think, I think that they don't. I think the problem is that they just seem so intuitive. If you cover your mouth, it will work. It's, it's, not, it's not really a scientific assumption. Uh, there's no RCT that we know. There's no hard evidence behind it, but it feels intuitive, doesn't it? If you cover your mouth, like we're taught to do when you sneeze, it will do yeah. something positive. Yeah. Um, how did you, how did you feel about wearing masks? Initially, I wasn't. I didn't have any strong opinions either way. I wasn't sure. I, like like what you're saying, I thought, oh, this. I mean, it kind of makes sense. If in theory you could block block some droplets and that would stop transmission. Um, the big problem with that, and I, I do bring this up in the book as well, is that uh, droplets are not the main route of transmission with COVID. It's it's become kind of universally accepted now that it's airborne transmission, which is through aerosols. And aerosols are much smaller than droplets. They go right through the, the fibers in the mask or they go escape through any opening whatsoever, which there are openings in all of the masks, unless you're fit testing the N95s, which obviously is not being done. Uh, and you can see that, you know, we, there was a, a couple, last month, there, the Canadian trucker protests that were happening. Obviously it's very cold in Canada in February and all the police that are wearing the mask, the, you can see their breath, it just goes right through the mask the whole time. Uh, and so what we've been everything that we've been trying to do, even though in theory, it makes sense just by putting that physical barrier, it's, it's trying to stop something that's not designed to stop. And, and you can see that anytime you can actually see visible breath, you can see how much of it just escapes out of the sides of the mask or through the mask. 
um, you know, football games in December in, in Wisconsin, you can see the breath just coming right out of the fans, even if they're wearing masks. Um, so it's, it, it, it kind of comes back to that problem of just being theatrical and performative and trying to remind people that to take this seriously, and that you're in a pandemic and kind of relates to your book really about just kind of creating this, this atmosphere of fear um, and encouraging compliance through, through an atmosphere of fear. And I think masks, you know, initially I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not anti-mask is what I would say. I'm pro evidence and pro data. And all of that kind of suggests that what we're doing has been very performative and hasn't really helped. So that's quite a rational answer, but what I'm really interested in is, you know, you've immersed yourself in the effectiveness and ineffectiveness of masks. And it's quite clear what conclusion you come to reading the book. And yet until a few weeks ago, you've had to wear a mask in public. How have you felt about it? Oh, it's personally frustrating, obviously. I mean, it, it, it's hard because you, you know, I, I, I try to look at it like it's not my role in this moment to tell this, this employee who's just doing their job that it doesn't work and that you shouldn't give me a hard time if I don't want to wear a mask. You know, I, I, I try to maintain a level of politeness in, in the social interactions, obviously. And I, what I've done recently is uh, during the last couple of months was I would just walk in with it on around my chin and, and really never pull it up. And people would generally not say anything. If they did say something, I would either just leave or if I really needed to be there, I'd deal with it. Um, you know, and we tried to avoid going to situations, uh, you know, my wife and I are married and we would try to avoid going to areas that had, that brought masks back. And, you know, we just wouldn't go if they were requiring it. Um, that's, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to create a scene. I'm not trying to get arrested or doing anything, violate the law or anything like that, but it is, it is personally hard to do it knowing, knowing what, you know, knowing the research. Um, and it, it's just a, you know, it's something I've, you just kind of have to deal with it, but it is personally frustrating. It's gotten to a point at times where, when it kind of feels endless that my wife and I are like, should we leave? Should we move? And and one of the nice benefits here is of the United States is that you can leave and go to other States that have different rules. And, you know, we sit there going, well, should we just go to Florida? Because we know we're never going to have to put up with that there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And that's, again, that's my concern with California going forward. It's just going to be kind of a rolling thing that we have to deal with all the time. Mm. Have you talk about social politeness? Have you had any serious disagreements or division with family and friends who think you're mad and socially irresponsible? Yeah, family not so much, but I've definitely have lost friends uh, that you know were kind of aware of what my views on this were. And um, again, I think it's it's there. It always comes back to that line of oh, we're in a pandemic, and you need to listen to the experts. Um, and I think especially early on, and, and over time, my hope is that more and more people have. Kind of come to this realization that they're they're making it up as they go in a lot of ways and they don't have a, a lot of scientific basis for their recommendations uh that trust has kind of waned in these in these institutions and in these people that you know saying masks provide better protections than vaccines is completely ludicrous and hopefully that that started to wake people up to say oh wait a second that doesn't make any sense and uh, you know i think it's it's it has been hard to feel like i've you know, over time it's been proven i've been proven right and and have them not kind of come back and apologize and say, you know, we were, I'm, I'm sorry for, for doubting you or, or, you know, ending our friendship for lack of a better word. So, but, you know, look, I, I felt like I'm doing the right thing here. And I, I feel like my family has encouraged me to keep speaking out and, and feel like it's, uh, it's been worth the trade-offs to, to speak up and to, and to provide the information and, and communicate to people. So, you know, I would hope that, and also, again, it, it, it's when it comes down to is, this shouldn't be a divisive issue. It shouldn't be something that causes people to separate. I have friends that 
I still have friends that believes it works. That's totally fine. I'm fine with that. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to excommunicate them from the, from my life because they think it works. So why is it the other way around? I, I don't know. And I think we'll be waiting for those apologies for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So final question. I know what it's like writing a book in a pandemic, uh, a completely new direction for both of us. I think it's fair to say what have been the best and the worst parts of writing this book for you? I had been asked a lot by people, you know, where can we find all of your work in one place? And I, you know, it's obvious, you know, it's a lot of work putting this all together. And I felt like just putting up a web page with a thousand graphs or whatever it is, wouldn't be helpful. It, 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 it's important to provide the context around it. And, and also to point out all of these kind of statements that, that experts have made over time and kind of what's happened afterwards because nobody else is doing it. Um, so it was very rewarding to, to be able to kind of finally give people an answer and say, look, I mean, it's not every graph I've ever made, but there's a lot of them in here. And people have been, it's been very rewarding to hear the response. People say, oh, I brought this to a, a city council meeting. And uh, there was a video of a, a young man that brought it to a local school board, or I, I think it was a school board, but maybe county superintendent and held up the book and was like, I will give you a copy if you'll read it. And the superintendent says, oh, I don't read books anymore. So, you know, it was kind of uh rewarding to hear that people were are finding it useful and bringing it to these things and and uh you know learning from it and giving it to you can give it to friends and family and i think that's that was very important for me is you know you can't it's hard to send somebody to a twitter page and say go look at ten thousand tweets but you hand them a book they can they can read a book in a couple of weeks um it's, the difficulties were just that it, one of the hardest challenges is obviously covid the pandemic was not over when i finished the book and handed it into the publisher so trying to maintain that that balance of like, well, I've covered it up to this point. Everything may change going forward. And clearly it did over this, this past winter. Um, and and trying to kind of say, you know, here's the here's been the results so far and not say this is the finality of it. Um, but, you know, that it it was it was a very generally I'd say it's been a very positive, very rewarding experience. And I've been very happy with the response and, and very humbled by it. Um, so it's it was definitely worth the time and an effort to write the book, I would say. Good. Well, history doesn't actually work in neat chapters. There's always the opportunity for you to write an updated edition. But even when it feels like the COVID pandemic is completely over, like you said, people might be more likely to put masks on again. It's a story that never ends really. And, and finding that moment um, to finish the book is tricky. I had yeah. I had the same the same problem too, but I think what you've created here is a is an interesting first draft of history. And for people who want to add to their library of COVID books, I think it's an incredibly useful reference book. I mean, it's one that I'm going to be able to turn to, and um, you know, remind myself of what happened when in mandates what the effectiveness was. And if, mind you, if there's one little bit of constructive criticism I'd give you for a future addiction, I would love Please, an index. Yeah. That would be mm, helpful. Okay. Yeah, index the book, because then you can say, right, Mississippi, show me Mississippi. Um, or what did Fauci say? That would be really handy. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me because um, I, really in, I really enjoyed the book. I flew through it. And even though I've been following this all the way through, because of that dizzying speed of changes, it all it brought it all back to me and it refreshed my memory. So thank you for writing the book. And thank, oh, thank you for you. your time today. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> so I really enjoy live conversation and interview. I've decided to sometimes release podcasts rather than my normal articles, squibs and essays. 
If you listened, please let me know what you think. And of course, if you liked it, please share it. Thank you.